Go ahead and uh, take out your Bibles this morning. Let's open them again to the book of Genesis. Continuing our verse-by-verse study of this book, and in this particular season of our life together as a church, we're looking at the life of Abraham, and within that season, we're looking at God's dealings with the city of Sodom. And our passage this morning is Genesis 19. Genesis 19. And we are again going to look at verses 12 through 29. We began looking at this passage a couple of weeks ago, and we want to continue looking at it this morning. Genesis 19, beginning in verse 12. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, O no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. And therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. And then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire, from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. And so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Peter, in 2 Peter 2.6, speaking of God, says, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, 
making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. How do you handle a verse like that? How do you handle a verse of Scripture that informs you that what happened to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah was only a picture, a shadow of what is going to happen on the last day? How do you handle the verses of the Bible that speak in unmistakable terms about the wrath of God? Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like he who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger. I trampled them in my wrath. Their blood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood upon the earth. How do you handle a passage like that? Some refuse to believe that a God of love could ever be a God of wrath. Yet, dear friends, it is precisely because He is a God of love, that He is a God of wrath. He must be a God of wrath. For it is the nature of love to protect and preserve. We might look at a mother bear protecting her cubs by attacking a person, and we might say she is full of anger, and that mother bear is full of wrath, but we understand why she is full of wrath. It is because of the love she has for her babies. So also, if I love my family, I will become very angry and very wrathful should someone try and harm them. When we love something, we will become angry and wrathful, and rightfully so. If someone tries to harm what we love, what is the chief love of God? What is it that God loves that will move him to anger and wrath if it is attacked? Well, first and foremost, there is his own glory. God loves his glory above all else. God is the only being in the universe for whom loving Himself is good and right. If God loved us more than Himself, He would be an idolater, a sinner, and He would not be God. God is holy. He loves all that is pure and good and true. And He 
is all that is good and pure and true. He loves himself. He loves his glory with an infinite love. And what is sin but an attack against the glory of God? And therefore God's love for his glory demands that there be wrath against sin. Sin is an attempt to dishonor God, to rob Him of His glory, to diminish His worth. And therefore, His wrath against sin is motivated by His love for His own glory. That's not all. God loves His Son. What is His Son but the image of His own glory reflected in His sight? He loves His Son with an infinite love. And when people hear of the glory of Jesus Christ and reject Jesus and refuse to submit to Jesus, they too are attacking the glory of the very Son of God. And it is God's love that moves Him to desire to protect and preserve the glory of His Son. And that love for His Son moves Him to anger and wrath against those who would trample the glory of His Son by their sin. God loves His children. God loves His children. In the passage that I just read about God coming from Basra in, his, in these garments that are stained with the blood of His enemies, that whole passage is about God coming and executing His wrath against those who were seeking to harm His children. He is speaking of bringing judgment upon the wicked who would ridicule and persecute and entice and entrap his children and seek to lead them away from him. It is not only for his sake, and it is not only for the sake of his son, that the wicked will be cast into hell on the last day. But it is even God's love for his children that moves him to exercise wrath against those who would hurt them. He will not have his children dwelling forever in a land of the wicked. Rather, the punishment of the wicked will forever be a testimony to God's children of his hatred of sin and the inestimable worth of his own glory. It is for the good, it is for the good of God's children that he will punish the wicked. So is our God a God of love? Absolutely, He is a God of love. And therefore, He is a God of wrath. I know that's a hard teaching. I know that's hard. But it is good for us. And that is why passages like Genesis 19 exist. We need to know these things. This morning we continue our study. My main proposition concerning this passage is that it is a picture to us of the gospel call to flee the wrath of God and run to Christ. We saw last time that the call to flee the wrath of God is an urgent call. We saw that it is an open call. Lot, go get your sons-in-law. Go get any you have in the city. Bring them with you if they will come. We saw that it is a serious call. It is not a joke. This morning I want us to look at the manner of this flight out of Sodom. And we'll close by looking at the one to whom we flee. 
Under this first heading, the manner of this flight, I want us to note two very important truths. First, I want you to see the truth that only divine grace can bring us to flee from the wrath of God. Only divine grace can bring us to flee from the wrath of God. It was divine grace that Lot even knew that judgment was coming. It was divine grace that the angels had come into his life and given him this warning. And now, in verses 15 and 16, Lot is continuing to linger. He is still in Sodom. The angels have said, leave, and he is lingering. He knows all the right things. He knows that judgment is about to come. He knows he must flee. He knows he has a wife and two daughters to protect. And yet, they are lingering in Sodom. And so, what does God do? Through His angels, God forcefully brings Lot and his wife and daughters outside of the city. Did you see that? Did you see those verses right there in verse 16? So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him outside and set him outside the city. This was God being merciful, forcefully bringing Lot out of the city. Many of us in this room could look at our own conversion to Jesus and say that it was very much like this. We were so in love with the world. We were so attached to our old ways of living, our old habits. We liked our pride. We liked our greed. We liked our lust. We liked our gluttony. We loved our self-centeredness. And though we knew that God's judgment was going to fall upon such things, we lingered. We did not want to separate ourselves from our sin. Only when God stepped in through the gospel and caused us to see the glory of Jesus Christ did those old things begin to lose their pull on us. Imagine a house burning down. Imagine that you are inside of that house and all of your possessions and your childhood treasures are there inside of that house. You know you must get out of that house or you will die. You must leave everything and get out. But you don't want to leave. These things mean everything to you. You don't want to leave. Some brave fireman is to come in and risk his life and knock you out to get you out of the house. That's the picture here. God almost forcefully had to bring Lot and his family out of Sodom. And so many of us, all of us, apart from God's grace, would have never left our sin, would have never left our old ways of living, would have never left our love of self in this world had God not come to us through His grace, through the gospel, and changed us. When God has determined to save someone, He will overcome their every resistance. They may harden their heart at first. They may linger in their sin and refuse to come, but God will overpower them. 
He will show them His glory. He will show them His goodness. He will bring them conviction of sin. As we sang in Psalm 32 a while ago, His hand will be heavy upon them until they come to the point of acknowledging their sin, confessing their sin, and throwing all upon Christ. He will confront them with His truth until they can no longer resist. Kind of makes me think of the Apostle Paul. Most of us know the story of how Paul became a Christian. He was using his Hebrew name Saul and he was persecuting the people of God. He's on the road to Damascus and Jesus appears to him and confronts him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But that's not all Jesus said. Jesus said, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Do you remember that verse? Jesus says to Paul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad is a pointed stick that a farmer would use to prod an animal along, especially if the animal began going off course. An ox might give a swift kick to protest going where the farmer wants it to go. But in doing so, the ox would only cause himself more pain if he kicked against the goad. The idea is that the ox's resistance is futile. The farmer will get the ox to go where he wants to go. The question is, will the ox do it willingly or will the ox go through much pain and then go where the farmer wants to go? That's what Jesus is saying to Paul. You're mine, Paul. (laughs) You will be an apostle. You will be a Christian. You are mine. You can resist for as long as you want. I will have you. So why do you keep kicking against the goats? Just submit. Trust me. Seems to me likely that Paul had been under the conviction of God for some time before the Damascus road. We know that he was encountering Christians. We know he was arresting Christians. We know he was there when Stephen was stoned. It might be that Paul, when his heart was trying to resist, being convinced, trying to resist, being persuaded about the Christian truth, he did not want to be a follower of Jesus, yet Jesus held Paul's heart in his hands. And Jesus had other plans. Despite all of Paul's resistance, At the appointed time and place, Jesus took hold of Paul's life and began to shape him into the apostle that for the rest of his life would proclaim, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. How thankful Paul later was that all of his kicking against the goads hadn't kept God from saving him. And so we see Lot, even as they are being set outside the city, saying thank you, right? Uh, Verse 16, the Lord being merciful to him, they brought him and set him outside the city. And then verse 19, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. You have shown me great kindness in saving my life. How many of us in this room... How many of us in this room are thankful that though we fought hard against Christ, though we fought hard not to repent, we fought hard, we were going to resist, we were not going to become a Christian, how thankful we are that Christ didn't just let us go. But that His hand was heavy upon us until He drew us to Himself. Jesus said, No one can come to Me 
unless the Father who sent me draws him. The first truth I wanted you to see about the manner of this flight from the wrath of God is that it is a work of divine grace, which is why if any of us in this room are saved, all we can say is, it is the grace of God. To him we give the glory. The second truth that I see illustrated in their flight from the wrath of God is how foolish and dangerous it is to look back. It is foolish and dangerous to look back. The angels are very clear in their instructions. See verse 17, see how clear the instructions are. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life, do not look back. Or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And yet we come to verse 26. Verse 26, and what do we read? But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now let's unpack that a little bit. Number one, a pillar of salt? Really? Why a pillar of salt? Why not a, a pillar of cheese? What, what's, what's this about? Why, why did she turn into a pillar of salt? Two, why did Lot's wife look back? Was she hearing the judgment of God behind her and was curious? What what was that about? Question three, what does it mean then for us today to look back when fleeing the wrath of God? And question four, why is it foolish and dangerous to look back? We're going to do these one at a time very quickly. Listen carefully. Number one, why did God turn Lot's wife into a pillar of salt? Um, salt can be a picture of something good in the Bible, such as when Jesus says in Matthew 5 to his people, you are the salt of the earth. He is calling us to be a good thing, not a, a bad thing. But in the Old Testament especially, salt is usually associated with God's curse and with God's judgment. I would suggest that it is not at all a coincidence that Sodom and the cities of the plain are located by the Dead Sea. Why do we call the Dead Sea the Dead Sea? Because it has so much salt in it that most life cannot be sustained in its waters. And the area surrounding the Dead Sea, the land around the Dead Sea, is known for its salt content. And not a few have suggested that it was the judgment that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain that had something to do with making that region of the world the way it is. In fact, I'll suggest in a few moments that it very much did have something to do with it. In Judges 9, verse 45, we, we find a man called Abimelech. Abimelech has just fought against the city of Shechem. He has captured the city of Shechem. He has killed all of the citizens, men, women, and children of the city of Shechem. And then, before he leaves the city of Shechem, he goes through it and sows its ground with salt. Why did he do that? Because he was trying to make sure that nothing would ever grow there again. It renders the soil sterile. In other words, salt is a picture of death and final judgment. 
Just as Sodom is coming to a complete and final end, so Lot's wife is being brought to a complete and final end. She is participating in the same judgment as the people to whom she was looking back. For what it's worth, and it may not be worth much, um, if you so choose, you can travel to the southern part of the Dead Sea and you can be shown what is supposedly Lot's wife. Um, There is a famed pillar of salt that people have known about and visited for many, many centuries. Uh, 2,000 years ago, the Jewish historian Josephus wrote about visiting the pillar of salt at the Dead Sea. You can Google the pillar of salt or Lot's wife, and you can see images of what's supposedly Lot's wife. I have no idea whether it is or not. There was no promise that it was going to be there forever or anything like that. That is what's being told. So God turned her into salt as a picture of judgment. But why did she look back? Well, I want you to note very carefully what happens in verses 23 through 26. It's easy to get this wrong. So look very carefully at verses 23 through 26 and what happens. Look at verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. So Lot and his family left Sodom sometime after dawn, we're told, and he arrived in Zoar sometime after noon. Okay, so the sun had risen on the earth. It's noon or, or not long after. And once Lot makes it safely into Zoar, the judgment begins. Verse 24, Then the Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah. So verse 23, Lot makes it to Zoar. Verse 24, judgment comes. Sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and... What grew on the ground. Notice that God's judgment also was not just against the people. He even sterilized the ground, hence the salt. Notice when God's judgment began, it wasn't just the cities. It was the whole valley. It's the whole region. It affected everything. In other words, this judgment that's taking place, it isn't just happening right here within the city limits of Sodom. This fire and brimstone, this major judgment of God is taking place over the whole region. And when this whole region of fire and brimstone, there's one little city, one little refuge called Zoar that is being spared. Remember the plagues in Egypt? Remember how the plagues in Egypt seemed to affect all of Egypt except for that one little area where Israel was? Right? All the other cows had died, but not Israel's cows. Everybody else is being stricken with flies, but there's no flies in, in this little region. So it is in this situation. The whole valley is being judged with fire and brimstone. But here's little Zoar, a little city, being spared. Well, thank goodness, Lot and his family had made it safely into Zoar. Or had they? Look at verse 26. Verse 26, But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. What does it mean that she was behind him? I don't think it means she was standing right behind him. There's no reason for us to know that. right? I think what's being said here, and I think a lot of scholars agree, is that she, had, she was behind Lot in the trek from Sodom to Zoar. The idea is that she was willfully still lingering. It is very possible, by the way, that Sodom was her hometown. 
We don't know. We're never told where she came from. But it's very likely that, that, that Lot married a, a woman of Sodom, just like his daughters were going to marry sons of Sodom. And so it seems that she had... Um, she was still behind Lot at some distance. That she was still refusing to go along. That she did not want to leave her home. She did not want to leave her city. She did not want to leave all that she knew behind in order to be saved. Jesus helps us understand this. Because He gives us the best commentary on these verses in Luke 17. In Luke 17, Jesus drives the point home. That the day of judgment, the day on which he returns, will be the day in which he will judge the living and the dead, and it will be a day like Genesis 19. He says Genesis 19 is about one small part of the world. Jesus is, is talking about a judgment that will come upon the entire world. But listen to what Jesus says in Luke 17. Here's the words of Christ. Likewise, just as it was in the day of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the last day, when Lot, I'm sorry, but on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with, uh, housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. So Jesus gives two examples of people who need to escape from judgment. The judgment is coming. And he says, let the one who is on the housetop not go back into his house to get goods before he escapes. Similarly, let the one who has gone out to the field not return home to try and get his goods before he escapes. And then he says, remember Lot's wife. The point seems to be that Lot's wife is an example of one who was so in love with what she was leaving behind that she could not stand to part with it. She was like the person in the house fire who will not leave everything in order to be saved. Jesus' very next words in Luke 17 are, Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. In other words, those who are so concerned about preserving what they have in this life will lose it all. But those who are willing even to lose their necks for the sake of Christ will gain it all in the world to come. We, here's the point. Here's the whole point of Lot's wife and why this is recorded for us in the Bible. Here's the point. We must be willing to part with anything and everything in order to have Christ and salvation. We must be willing to part with anything and everything in order to have Christ in salvation. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to say to Jesus, whatever you want me to do, whatever you tell me is best, however you want me to behave, whatever, you want me to, whatever path you want me to follow, I am yours and I will do it. Whatever you want me to leave behind, I will leave. Whatever habit you want me to give up, I'll give up. Whatever place you want me to move to, I will move there. Whatever relationship you want me to begin or end, I will begin or end it. I am yours, I trust you, and there is nothing still in my hands that I am clinging to that is off limits to you. 
That is what it means to be a Christian. Even to say, Lord Jesus, if it is your will that I die tomorrow for your sake, then bring it on. What does it mean for people today to look back when fleeing Sodom? It means continuing to long for your old life. It means continuing to look back at your past sins and your worldly living and to long for them. You ever do that? A true Christian is a new creation. All things are made new. The past, that the old has passed away. But would-be Christians... Oh, they profess Jesus and they speak well of Him, but they do not want to let go of their sin and they do not want to let go of their authority over their own life. I will say good things about Jesus, but I will live my life the way I want to. And then, there are true believers who at times in spiritual weakness or spiritual depression will look back at their old sins And long for them again. Rather than looking at their past sins with disgust, they'll look back with fondness. Augustine had become convinced of Christianity in the gospel. He was convinced and he wanted to be a Christian, but he could not let go of his immoral relationship with the woman with whom he was living. He wanted to have a new life of purity. He wanted to have a life of following Jesus, but he could not let go of his lust. He famously prayed, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. Such a person is not yet a true believer. Their heart still belongs to the flesh and not the spirit. It was only later that Augustine was famously changed and converted when he read Romans thirteen fourteen, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Maybe there's someone in here like that. You want to be a Christian. You want to follow Christ. But there is some part of your life, some sin, some something that you can't let go of. You, you want to keep looking back to it. You, you can't divorce yourself from it completely. And Jesus says, I come to me freely. I have done everything you need to be saved. The only requirement is this. You must be willing to give up everything for me. Because he's worth it. He knows what's best. You wouldn't go to a doctor and the doctor says, all right, I can cure you of your cancer, but you must do this, this, and this. And you say, well, I appreciate that, but that's off limits. If you trust your doctor, you're going to do what he says, no matter what he says. So dear friends, remember Lot's life. Lot's wife. The fourth question was, why is it foolish to look back? There are so many answers of why it's foolish to look back at our past sins fondly. Lot's wife was looking back fondly to a place that God had declared to be wicked and detestable before him. So also, how foolish it is for us to look fondly upon something that God has declared to be evil and deadly to us. Who would look at a fatal cancer fondly? Who would look at a deadly poison fondly? Only a fool 
Friends, don't be fooled by the enticements of this world. You are being told to look fondly upon self-indulgence, to look fondly upon a life of materialism, to look fondly upon sexual immorality, to look fondly upon a life of living for today and living for the moment and not worrying about eternity. You are being told that this is the way to live. And this life that the world is telling you to look at fondly is the same thing that God is telling you is deadly and dangerous. And He has marked it for destruction. And if you are living in that life of materialism, if you are living in that life of sexual immorality, if you are living in that life of self-absorption when the day of judgment comes, then you will be judged. You must flee. You must flee with all your might. None of these things can compare with Christ. (laughs) What the world doesn't tell you is that these things are the wide path that leads to destruction. That these things do not compare to the glories of Jesus. That these things, if you were to choose to give up Christ and following Him, to have that kind of life, you'd be making the biggest mistake of your life. For those things are fading. Those things are perishing. Those things lead to judgment. But following Christ leads to glory and life. Esau gave up his birthright for a bowl of porridge. You and I can give up the glories of heaven and the joy of having Christ as our bridegroom for the fleeting pleasures of this world. It would be really foolish. And it may be that some of you are doing it even today. That television or fashion or some hobby or some work or family or concerts or sports, something is beginning to take more and more of your heart away from Christ. These things are beginning to matter more to you than Christ. These things are becoming more important to you than Christ. It's a dangerous path. And if you stay on it long, you will end up in judgment. If my hands are laden with pebbles, I cannot clasp the diamonds you hand me. Unless you fling out the sandbags, the balloon will cleave to the earth. And unless we turn the world out of our hearts, it is no use to say, Come, Lord Jesus, for there is no room for Him anyway. Alexander McLaren said that. We should take it to heart. All right, let's close. I want us to think very briefly about the one to whom we flee. Look at verses 18 through 22, where Lot talks about this place called Zoar. Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. And therefore the name of that city was called Zoar, which means little. This little town, this little village, this little city in the valley suddenly becomes all so important. It was nothing compared to Sodom. 
It was nothing compared to the glories of Gomorrah. But now this little city has been exalted as the place of safety. And my suggestion is that this is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not appear as a glorious king. He was meek and mild. He was of no account in the eyes of the world. He came from the little town of Bethlehem. He grew up in Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, they said. He was looked upon as the son of a simple carpenter. He had no place to lay his head. He was never wealthy in the eyes of the world. And yet he was the son of God. He was the one appointed to be the place of refuge for all sinners who would flee to him. Just as Lot asked these angels for a place to run to where he would be safe, so Job, years earlier, had cried out for a mediator between God and man in which man could find safety. Jesus is the appointed mediator. Jesus is our Zohar. He is our mighty fortress. The powers of darkness will not reach those who rest in Christ. And like the walls of a city, which take the full brunt of the attack and spare the people within, so Christ has borne fully and completely all the wrath our sins deserved, and all that are in Him are now completely safe. There is coming a day of final judgment. Jesus is both the one who will bring the judgment and the one in whom the faithful will find safety. My understanding of the Bible is that when Jesus comes back, and it could be any moment now, it will be the end. The end. I think Matthew 25 is very clear. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. No seven-year tribulation, no millennium, no, no, no questions here. It's very simple. The Son of Man returns. He sits on his throne. All the nations there. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. He will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and its angels. Jesus said the day of judgment is happening when? When the Son of Man comes. And that could be any day. Will you, on the last day, have Christ? Will you be in Zohar? Will you have fled the wrath of God? Will you have your sins or will you have salvation? Will you have this world or will you have heaven? Will you have your will or will you have Christ's will? That is the choice I lay before you this morning. Unbeliever, will you continue lingering or will you run to Christ, be baptized in His name and follow Him? Let's pray. Let's all take a few moments. Let's respond to God in our hearts through, through prayer.
you are here and you're an unbeliever, I urge you, I plead with you to run to Christ in your heart this very moment. See him as your refuge. See him as your mighty fortress. Throw yourself upon him. See him as your only hope of salvation. Know that he is good and wise and you can trust him. Be willing to give up everything about your life and who you are to have him. He will lead you down the paths that will lead you to heaven and happiness and peace. Run to Christ. Believers in this room, aren't you thankful for the grace of God? How blessed truly is the man whose transgressions are forgiven. Rejoice in your salvation. Thank God for your salvation. Let's take a few moments and let's respond to God in prayer and then we'll respond together in singing. Let's pray.